Hey, Salt City. Uh, my name is Jordan, and this morning we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And um, I want to start by just reading a portion of this account. And I know Isaac just asked you to, to sit down, but would you actually stand with me as a sign of just respect for what Jesus walked through? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And then down in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You can take a seat. I don't have a main point. I don't have three points to get to the main point. It felt just like not the right thing. And so instead, what I want to do is I just want to walk through this story. And the story speaks for itself. And I just want to read a lot of the text to you and give some commentary on it as we go. The most significant three days in history starts with the crucifixion. And uh, I want to start in Matthew 27, verse 3, where it talks about Jesus' betrayer. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. So here's what we have in this initial section of this story is an example of the utter sinfulness of sin. So first you've, you've got a man, Judas, who betrays the Messiah, but it's not just the Messiah, it's one of Judas's best friends who he's walked through life with over the last several years. But it's not just Judas that demonstrates his wickedness in this section, it's the chief priests. Did you catch what just happened? They just heard testimony that they are about to kill an innocent man. And the response to that is, well, what is that to us? 
It shows their, their motives for killing Jesus. And they weren't interested in what they thought was justice. They were interested in their own pride and reputation, even to the point of killing an innocent person. And so I, I, the question I want to ask here is, are these examples an exception to the human nature or the description of the human nature? So I, I used to teach a course often called Gospel 101. Maybe some of you guys have, have been through it. And we would do surveys where we would ask people in our lives what they believed about religion and about God. And one of the first questions was you would ask people to, to rate humanity on a morality scale. And so it was like from zero to 10, where do humans in general land? Zero being evil, 10 being perfect, where do humans land? And it's actually interesting because essentially no matter who you ask, you get basically the same range. So people are really afraid of the poles, okay? Nobody's going zero because that seems like two downer. And then uh, nobody's going 10 because nobody wants to like say that humans are perfect. But pretty much everybody goes like six to eight, all right? So, so human beings are, are basically good with maybe some flaws intermixed here and there. But it's, what's actually true from scripture is that the polars are the only two types of people that exist, Here's what we know from the Bible, that the consistent testimony of the entire story of the Bible, and then specifically laid out in Romans chapter 1, is what's called total depravity. Human beings are completely and totally wicked. And so on this scale, human beings get a zero. That doesn't mean that every human being is as bad as they possibly could be, but it means that even the best moments of our lives are, are fundamentally flawed. Isaiah says that our good works are like filthy rags. So not even the bad things we do, the good things we do don't measure up. And so you've got every human being who has ever lived, including everyone in this room, that lands at a zero on the morality scale. And you've got one human being that was a 10, Jesus Christ, who is perfect. All you have is the polars. And so what we see here with Judas and the chief priests is not an exception to human nature, but a description of what we all are like. And so I, I, Drew mentioned this last week that I think it was a really important point. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? Here we have a look at Judas and how his life ends. And I think it can be easy to think, I've thought this through most of my life, that Judas was fundamentally evil and that Peter was basically good but made some mistakes. And Peter, uh, and so, so those mistakes weren't held against Peter. But here's the reality, is that both Judas and Peter were fundamentally flawed, were evil by nature, and they in fact committed the same sin, the betrayal of Jesus. They left him in the most difficult moment of his life. But the difference between the two is their response to that initial sin. Judas had that second sin, that follow-up sin where he feels guilty, he feels shame, he recognizes what he's done to the point that he throws away the money that he had gotten to betray Jesus, but he doesn't go to Jesus with that shame. And instead he tries to solve that problem himself by paying back the chief priest and, and feeling bad enough about his sin that, that, that maybe you know things could, could get better if he can just fix it. That's the second sin of Judas, but here's what Peter understands. When Jesus comes to him, Peter just comes back to Jesus and just owns what had gone wrong. Have you ever considered that maybe in your life, 
that second sin is the thing that's most offensive in your life to Jesus. Maybe that thing that you think is awful that really is awful, the the secret pornography addiction, the greed in your life, the, the love of money, your pride that manifests itself in all sorts of areas in your life, that yes, that is bad, but have you ever thought about that you trying to clean yourself up after the fact to make yourself right with God or, or this idea that you can just feel bad enough, have enough shame in your life, then that will pay for your sins, that maybe that's the thing that most is most offensive to God, it's the thing that kept Judas from Jesus is he was unwilling to come to, Ju- to Jesus with that sin. There's only one solution to sin. And this story is the only solution. That's what we're unpacking the rest of the time. Look at verse 11. Jesus is on trial because of the betrayal of Judas. Now Jesus stood before the governor And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. I love Jesus' silence when he's on trial. It's this like pacifist protest against what's happening. But it's also a really like a deeply authoritative move. It's like Jesus is saying, you can't put me on trial. I'm not going to defend my life. My life speaks for itself. In the silence that Jesus has in the the submission to, to the injustice of what's happening to him makes people around him really uncomfortable and you start to see people like freak out a little bit as they encounter this this steady silence of Jesus. You see it with Pilate. Pilate's like, why aren't you defending yourself? Like, what are you doing? If you're an innocent man, like stand up against these charges and he starts to get a little bit afraid of Jesus. You see it with Judas, who after Jesus just submits to the betrayal, Judas freaks out and realizes everything that he's done wrong. You see it with Peter, right? There's that moment with Peter after he's betrayed Jesus where he's sitting near Jesus's trial and all of a sudden Jesus just turns and he makes eye contact with Peter. And he doesn't say a word, but Peter sees everything in Jesus' eyes. And in this story, through his word, Jesus is turning and he's making eye contact with you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows everything about your life. And he is not the one on trial here. In fact, Jesus is the one that puts the entire world on trial. He is the judge. He is the ruler. They've misunderstood who he is. And the entire world, including all of us in this room, are on trial before him. And the verdict will not look good. So that's what the silence says. But I think in some senses, even more importantly, the silence says something absolutely radical and stunning, but that we have to understand in order to understand this story. Jesus' silence says that this was the plan. He's not trying to get himself out of this moment because he is the one in control of the moment. Like, like feel that with me. The God who upholds the universe has to have help carrying his 40-pound cross up a hill because he's too weak to carry it himself. That was the plan. 
It was the plan for him to be whipped by sinful human beings with a cord of several strands with bone fragments on the end of it that would get stuck in his skin so they would hit him once and then they would pull it and rip off his skin, starting on his back and then flipping over to his front to the point that his intestines were starting to show. That was the plan. It was the plan for him to hang on a cross, which ultimately was a suffocation device as the victim would have to push himself up on the nail on his feet, experiencing that pain in order to get a breath until he lost the strength to push himself up and eventually suffocated. It was the plan that the God who breathed life into the world would suffocate to death. That is the wisdom of God. And it makes absolutely no sense to us, but it was It was his plan, and not only was it the plan in the moment, but it had been the plan since the beginning, right? It's the plan in this moment, but it was also the plan when Jesus became a human being so that that he could become killable. It, It was the plan throughout his entire life. Not only that, it was the plan throughout all of human history. Before the foundation of the world, God knew what human beings would eventually do and what it would cost him to get them back to himself, and he still made the world. Why? Not because he was lacking love and needed to get love from us, but because he had such love in and of himself that he needed something to overflow it onto. It was like God's love was this raging river and there was this little dam built up at the end and the water was rising and the dam wasn't tall enough and so he needed something for the water to outlet onto and that outlet was you and me. It was the earth. He wanted to love the world. And apparently, the best way to love the world was not through our moral perfection, but through our redemption. Remember that song, I would walk 500 miles to get to you, and I'd walk 500 more so to be the man, to walk walk 1,000 miles to fall down at your door, something like that. Dot, 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 just a lot of dot, 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 dots after that. Uh, What's, what's, like, what's that song trying to communicate? It's this idea that when something or someone is worth it to you, you will go through any amount of things to get them. Like a thousand miles is a long ways. That's from here to Washington, D.C. How many people would you walk to Washington, D.C. for? Yeah, that's like, that's a commitment. And the idea is like I would walk that far and I'd have the blisters on my feet and I'd sleep outside, do all this stuff, Because you're worth it to me. Here's the distance Jesus traveled for you, heaven to earth. Here's the pain that he endured. The most cruel form of of persecution and murder that the Romans ever came up with. As a giant sign to you to say, you were worth it to me. Guys, Jesus was a man. Right, so we, we tend to emphasize his divinity, which is true. He's, he's 100% divine. But he's also, in, in the mystery of the Trinity, he's fully human. In order to endure something that is really, really hard, you need motivation to do it. So what was on Jesus' mind as he carried or attempted to carry his cross up that hill? The glory of God? Yes, absolutely. But I, I, I'm convinced also you. Relationship with you was worth it to him. But there's something that we have to understand. 
this being the plan from the beginning does not negate our responsibility for what happened to Jesus. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Do you see what Pilate is doing here? He's trying to declare the world to the world that he is innocent of the blood of Jesus. And so he goes through this ceremony of washing his hands in front of the, in front of the crowd. Question, is that true that Pilate is innocent of the blood of Jesus? No. He was a part of what happened that day, a significant part of what happened that day. But Pilate doesn't want to feel the shame of this ugly, disgusting sight in front of him. And so he tries to take a step back from it and distance himself from what's happening. You ever catch yourself doing that? That, that it, can be, it can be easy to look at the horrific nature of the cross and, and, and to, to see what Jesus went through and, and to, to not be able to process the fact that that's how bad our sin was, that that's what it took to save us from it. And so we try to find other ways to deal with our sin. And so we minimize it. And yeah, yeah, we're imperfect, but, but I'm, not, I'm not that bad. I'm not totally depraved. I'm not wicked to my core. We, we compare ourselves to other people. We try to find another solution to sin. We try and just experience enough of the shame that we don't actually have to go to Jesus and see the, the shame and the mockery that it put on him. But here's what Peter said later in Acts chapter 3, talking about this moment where Jesus stood before Pilate. He looked out at a crowd similar to this crowd, and he said, you killed the author of life. Salt City Church, we killed the author of life. He had to die for the collective weight of the sin of humanity of which you have contributed to. You put the nails there. I put the nails there in his hands. We bear the responsibility. And because of that, Jesus is condemned to death, beaten, mocked, nails driven into his hands. But one of the wild things about this story is None of those things are the worst moment of the story. The worst moment is verse 45, after Jesus has been hanging on the cross for several hours. This is what he says. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, a prediction of this moment. Okay, so Drew talked about last week how Jesus is afraid in the garden. 
And I just want to remind you of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who faced off with the devil in the desert and he won. Jesus confronts the religious rulers knowing that they're plotting to take his life and he drives them out of the temple with a whip. Okay, he, he's the one that stares down a storm coming his way in a tiny little boat and he tells it to be quiet and it listens. Jesus to this point has never been afraid. But right before this moment of crucifixion in the garden, his disciples watch him stagger off into the darkness and fall to the ground, sweating blood in fear. And so our question has to be, what could possibly scare God? It isn't just the physical pain of death. It's not the Roman cross before which the Son of God weakens. It's the cup. It's the fierce hatred of God towards sin, and Jesus is about to take it. That is the nightmare of Calvary. The burning anger of God poured out on the Son of God, shouldered by the one who never deserved it. And it says that Jesus is crying out as he's experiencing this moment. If he was sweating blood just anticipating this moment, what was it like when he experienced it? And in that word cry out, I think it's too weak. It, it's, it's like a shriek. It's a scream. And, and Jesus is shrieking out about his pain, but it's not the pain in his hands or the, about the thorns in his head. It's the pain of loneliness and abandonment. For the first time ever, God the Son is separated in some senses from God the Father. Jesus wants to talk to his dad in this moment of pain, and the Father does not answer. And the earth starts revolting against this seeming injustice. And the world goes black and earthquakes begin. The curse of God is falling down on the world. And, and, and when we think about sin, we tend to think of our individual sin, which we, I think we have to grapple with. But there's also this collective weight of sin that we've all contributed to throughout human history that has ruined God's good world. And so Adam and Eve, in the beginning, by instead of submitting to God, trying to become God, they, they, it was like they were standing on top of a mountain and they rolled this little snowball of sin down the mountain and it's been building up steam and weight ever since. And somewhere along the line in human history, it's turned into an avalanche and we have contributed to that avalanche of brokenness and hurt and pain and sin and injustice in the world and God hates injustice because he's good and we're standing at the bottom of the mountain and the avalanche is coming down towards us and it's three miles wide and it's coming at us faster than we could ever run and we've got nowhere to go and all we can do is stand there and do this and there's nothing we can do to stop the sure death that is coming at us but in the last moment Jesus stands in front of us between us and the avalanche of wrath and he extends his arms out to take on the collective force of human depravity with his arms open because the only match for eternal wrath is eternal self-giving love. And Jesus buries the anger of God in his soul. Jesse and I had a, one of the scarier moments of our lives this week, and I got to preface this, okay, because I know you guys love Graham. Graham is good. He's fine, doing great. But there was a scary moment that we had this week. 
Um, he had croup, which is like this virus that makes it hard for you to breathe, and he might have some asthma and stuff like that going on. And he woke up in the middle of the night just like freaking out. And I ran into his room, and he like got himself worked up, and he just could not breathe. And um, I, I tried everything, right? So like I, I had that when I was a kid, and I know you got to run into the bathroom, and you turn on the, the shower so that the steam somehow can kind of help the breathing. And I'm holding him in the bathroom with that steam, and it's not helping. And he just like, he, he just can't get a breath. And he was starting to turn white. And so we called paramedics. Um, and in the meantime, we're trying every intervention that we know of, right? Like, we're, we're talking on the phone, like, what can we do? And we're trying the steam thing. We, we took him outside. We, um, we're trying to, like, different positions to try and help him breathe. And we're trying to get him to calm down, right? I, I would do anything in that moment for my son. Anything to save him. Any intervention that I have is going to come that kid's way. In this moment, Jesus is gasping for breath. And God the Father does not intervene. Why? Right before this, there's an, a key interpretive point to this whole story. It's the story of Barabbas, a convicted murderer and revolutionary. He had earned his way into prison with the way that he had lived his life. And by the plan of God, not by some coincidence, by the plan of God, Jesus' life is exchanged for the life of Barabbas. The innocent one, Jesus, has shackles put on his wrist, walks into prison, and Barabbas, the prisoner, is set free. And it likely would have taken a while for them to build a cross. And so the cross that Jesus carries up that hill is more than likely the cross of Barabbas. Jesus was crucified alongside two criminals. The third criminal more than likely was going to be Barabbas. But instead, Barabbas is walking free because Jesus took on his cross. Listen, you are Barabbas. You are the prisoner because of the life that you've lived because of your guilt, because of the way that you've rebelled against God, you were enslaved to sin and there was no way out, no hope. You were walking to eternal and physical death. But Jesus walked up and said, my life for hers, my life for his. He traded places with you. The name Barabbas means son of the father. The one ultimate son of the father, Jesus, was exchanged so that he could ransom for himself an entire world of sons and daughters. By the willing imprisonment of the one, he saved the many. And that is why there is no intervention towards Jesus on the cross. Even though God the Father and God the Son both had all the power in the world to stop what was happening, they didn't intervene because Jesus' death was the intervention for you. God the Father deeply loves his son, Jesus, but he loves all of his sons and daughters in the world. And so through the means of Jesus' death, he saved the many. The father turns his back on the son 
so that he would never have to turn his back on you. Jesus cries out in loneliness and abandonment so that you would never know what that's like. Jesus' cry is not answered so that if you cry to heaven, if you cry to heaven right now today, you will be answered by God. And that stare, here's what we can interpret from that. That stare that Peter had, or that Jesus had towards Peter. The stare towards Pilate, the stare towards even Judas was not a stare of condemnation. It was a stare of love. That he was willing to go to any length to save them. And he wanted them to come to him. His hell for our heaven. That's the exchange. That's what's happening on the cross. Now, we think about the cross as forgiveness offered to us by God. That is absolutely true, and that's only half of it. There's actually way more than just that going on here. It's not just that you get a clean slate if you trust Jesus, but you get so much more. Because here's what Jesus does, is he not only trades you where he takes on the punishment for your death, but he credits to you the utter perfection of his life. Because it's not just a clean slate that can get you into the presence of God. You need total and utter perfection. And so Jesus credits that to you. It's not only that you walk out of prison set free, but Jesus lays on you the congressional medal of honor for all the good works that you've done. You're like, what good works? You just said they're like filthy rags. Yeah, that's the point. They're Jesus's good works. You get credit for them. And it's not just that you get the Congressional Medal of Honor, but as Jesus goes to his death, you are signed into the will so that you get everything that he has. Access to the Father, his perfect record in relationship with God, eternal life with him. You get everything. Jesus signs it off into you so that you receive what only he earned. It's now yours. Is the, the, the most important moment of your life is not your marriage. It's not when you get your dream job. It's not whatever else is one of the highlights of your life. The most important moment of your life happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on a cross to save you. The historical fact that you can be forgiven and redeemed, that you can have a relationship with God, that's the most important thing that has ever happened for your life, and it is the defining moment and characteristic of your life. So can I, can I call you on your pride and what I hope will be actually a really encouraging way? How could you possibly think that there's anything in your life that God could not forgive you for? How could you possibly commit a sin and let that sin seemingly become, come between you and him? Or think that there's somehow a barrier between you and God? Look at what he did for you. Do you think that your sin is more powerful than his life? Do you think that your death is more powerful than this sacrifice? There's nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. So stop being so proud to think that there ever could be anything that could separate you. Jesus did all of that for you. Believe him. Trust him. 
And after Jesus dies, something amazing happens. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was the place where heaven and earth meet, where God came to meet with human beings. But there was something wrong because of our fall, because of sin. There was this giant curtain, 30 feet tall by 30 feet wide, separating human beings from God. And so people who wanted to go to be with God were separated from his immediate presence. So imagine whatever um, like famous person, politician, uh, whoever is, is your hero, okay? Imagine they become elected president of the United States. And not only that, but you get an invitation to the White House to meet them for the first time ever. And so you're excited, you're like counting down the days, and you go to the White House, and, and you can't believe it. Like, the, the place is, is amazing, and, and you feel kind of the epicness of this moment. And then you start walking, and they're like, okay, you're about to, to meet your hero, the President of the United States. And then you turn this corner, and then there's just this giant curtain. And then they're just like, yeah, your hero's in there. And you just stand there, and it's like, okay, like, this is, this is cool. My hero's over there. But you just kind of look around and then awkwardly leave. It wouldn't be what you dreamed it was going to be. People coming to experience God, in some senses, it was, it was amazing because it's like, oh, God's in there, but nobody could get in there. And so it wasn't what they wanted it to be. It wasn't what they, they thought it would be. And not only was it not what they thought it would be, it was actually deeply terrifying because there was one time a year that a person would go into the presence of God. It was the priest on the Day of Atonement and he would wear bells around his ankle and they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he just died in the presence of God because of the sheer weight of God's goodness, human beings can't be in that sheer weight of that goodness so that if the priest would just die that they would be able to pull him out. So even the person that got to go in there was not able to enjoy the presence because it was utterly terrifying. That wouldn't be something you look forward to. It would be something that you dread. But in the crucifixion, Jesus rips the temple curtain in half, showing that God is with his people again, that heaven is invading earth, and that we can walk into the very near presence of God, not because God has lowered his standards, but because he has made us perfect in Christ so that we are welcomed into heaven with him. Like, like, do you understand that the primary story of the Bible is not just that you need to go do some stuff for God, that you need to go live for him, or that you need to live under him and, and really obey his rules so that you hope he doesn't curse you. The story of the Bible is that God wants to live life with you. He wants relationship with you. He wants to, to live you to live in his presence. He wants you to be his friend. So that he went to that extent so that he could be with you for eternity. So that we could have a little taste of heaven in his presence now. That's amazing. And we'll unpack more of what that means next week. But I gotta, I gotta give you just a little bit of a taste before we go, okay? Verse 59. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in a new tomb 
which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Most of the bodies from crucifixions were just thrown in this kind of open trench. And so if that would have been the case, the disciples would have been able to steal the body and kind of make up this whole hoax of a resurrection. But God didn't want that idea to be able to circulate. So God puts Jesus in a tomb that is a known tomb that is sealed. And not only is it sealed, it's guarded. So the chief priests are having this conversation and they said this and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said when he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So it seems like they've got this thing locked down. They've got soldiers guarding it day and night. But they thought that they were defending the tomb from the disciples, but they had no idea what was coming Sunday morning. And that they... And not only they, but no power in heaven or on earth could stop what was coming. Pilate said, go make the grave as secure as you can. But what they didn't know is that graves aren't safe from Jesus. You can't make a grave safe from Jesus. He robbed the cross of its shame. He robbed Satan of his power. He robbed death of its sting, and he will rob every grave of every person who believes in him, including your grave. You will rise from the dead just like he will rise from the dead. Jesus is ransacking death, and he's turning it into life. Believe in him. Let's pray. Jesus, help us believe. We um, think that these things are hard to believe at times. We find it hard to believe that you can forgive us of our sins. We find it hard to believe that we have fullness of life in you and you'll never let us go. But it's not because you're wrong, it's because we're wrong. And we've been wrong on so many things. God, we collectively as a church come before you and we repent of our sin that caused you to hang on a tree, Jesus. It was wrong but we praise you that you don't hold it against us, that you willingly walk there so that we wouldn't have to. And and God, we want to take advantage of that gift that you've given us. We want to to trust you. And we want to live in all of this goodness coming towards us. We want to believe that it's real. And so God, help us believe. And and for people in the room or online that, that haven't believed, speak to them right now. Would this be a moment where they trust in you and then live the rest of their lives in in the communion with you that you earned for us. Jesus, thank you for setting us free. Thank you for doing everything that we couldn't do. Thank you for standing in our place. We think you're amazing. We love you. Amen.